Out of the blue comes another JBM cast. These are few and far between, I know. I've always been a fool for trying to run multiple projects simultaneously, and I never learn that this is virtually impossible. The summer. The mad, mad summer. The house moves and the stag do's and the weddings and the funerals. The daily grind of the day job, all competing against writing poems, short stories, bits and bobs of creative non-fiction, playing around with the band, getting up for ballet class, thinking about videos and imagery and yeah... Still working on that long-awaited novel manuscript. I ought to learn when to quit, but unfortunately, I'm always inspired by seeing other people make all this look easy. Here we go again. For this episode, I'm going to read a couple of pieces recently published on a friend's website. I met Fabrizio through working at the Opera House in Covent Garden, said day job. He's an exciting young man with a lot of ambition, who might easily soon be running his own opera company, think tank or arts collective, but for now, whilst studying in Spain, he's set up an online gallery displaying the work of many talented artists whilst bringing attention to political issues. The project is called Artidest. Check out the site at artidest.com. Alongside the gallery, Fabrizio launched a blog, edited by Laura Huetto Pug, from which I'd like to share some of my work with you. The first piece I'll read is from a group of posts that ran alongside Artidest's first virtual exhibition on gender equality in partnership with he for she I wanted to explore the problem writers face when they come to creating characters of the opposite sex the second piece will come a little bit later 
brief reflection on writing characters of the opposite sex. With most of your work, you leave yourself behind. Most of yourself. You open your journal or laptop and stand in the foothills of some idea, some image or some refrain, and you leave yourself behind as you begin to climb. You see unique landscapes on the way up, vistas you alone can paint, you alone have seen them. But it takes few words to share them. Readers understand because they too have seen mountains, oceans, deserts, forests, either with their own eyes or through the lens of the television camera. These are universal images that enter the mind naturally. It gets complicated and more interesting when during your journey you meet characters, men, women, children, animals, gods, ghosts. There they are in front of you, figures from a dream with vivid faces. You can describe their looks easily, but what about writing their personalities? As surreal as it sounds, you first have to spend time with them. Some are garrulous and like to talk. Others are reticent and guard their secrets. Some follow you around. Some come to you willingly. It's slow going, but you begin to get a handle on who they are. You hear their stories. They talk about their beliefs. You learn what they've been through, what scares them, what scarred them. You get to know them, some from a distance, a neighbour or colleague, some more intimately, a friend, a lover. Afterwards, you let the journal be for a spell and progress to the task of relaying these characters using a story of your own. Here you leave yourself behind once more, most of yourself. Experience can be bothered, but not personality you mustn't contaminate, because now we're concerned with sharing the experience of meeting these characters, the experience of getting to know them, the individual, not the universal. For readers, this is one of the most magical elements of fiction. When I first came to it, I found relaying the female characters I'd met impossibly hard. I muddled through with the men, knowing something of their nature. I'd seen enough, lived just enough, in my thirty-plus <clears throat> years, to put something close to convincing impressions of male existence on the page. But what of the women I discovered in my journals? How accurately has growing up as a boy and living as a man informed me about the corresponding experience of a girl or a woman? I could try and portray such characters through voice, through action, but my attempts were often unpersuasive and frustrating, and when challenges come, it's easy to lose the path to remember only the faces and lose sight of the personalities emerging in the work. I approach the problem with a question, and I have no answers because I'm only exploring questions. The characters you meet whilst you're writing, what is it about them that draws you towards them? For me, it's asking how the variables of life have affected them, the lottery of birth, the delicacy of childhood, the vulnerable heart of youth the indifferent heart of adulthood, exposures to every addiction in between. It's discovering how they've evolved in different ways under the same strains faced by everybody else. It's exciting because, as there's a myriad of such variables, no two characters can be exactly alike. But one thing, to my mind, is true. It's emotion that unites us. Emotion manifests in both sexes from the same source because it comes from a part of us which is both male and female a part of us that exists in our species collectively and originates before gender is assigned to an individual, a part of us that's as universal as mountains, oceans, deserts, forests. 
So when you're working and you leave most of yourself behind, you're free to meditate on that which you do carry with you, those human basics that existed before your personality formed and complicated things. Spending time contemplating these vital elements, questioning the depth of their emotional response to all that the world throws at us, has, I think, helped me begin to write characters of both genders empathetically. This next piece, I think it's fair to say, is less article and more creative non-fiction. Laura asked if I'd like to meet one of the artists involved with the gallery, and I was very lucky to be invited to visit the London studios of Diane Kaufman, who, with watercolours, charcoal and oil paints, creates work that's challenging, but rewarding. Laura called it The Poet and the Painter, and it's an account of that visit.
Across white walls, sunlight. Bright rectangles creep as the sun falls. Upon those walls, rows of paintings hang. Look once and be confronted. A second look, curiosity. Look upon our faces. Our faces are not our faces. Look upon our makeup, its anguish, its humour. We are here because we call. She smears and brushes and moves to nudge us, to search within us. We watch through eyes smeared shut as she searches beneath for the familiar, for some reflection, for some glimmer, some echo of a world that's real. Look upon our faces. Our faces are not our faces. In the corners, canvases lean. A long table is covered in stacks of sketches. One chair has a cushion, the other is wooden. Both are decorated with tiny spots of paint. A painter, offering orange juice, motions for a writer to sit, smiles. The writer sees the smile lift the painter's mouth. The brightness of her eyes holds understanding in a place where secrets dance. The painter describes the faces of her portraits, the warping of features by the spreading of colour across a figure's visage. We've learnt to read each other by looking into the face, but the face is just a mass of flesh and vessels. It's assembled randomly in such a strange lottery. It's arbitrary. It's not a true representation of the self, the character living and growing inside. The writer swallows juice. He says he sees torment and sorrow in the faces on the wall. Our faces are not our faces. The painter is someone who's aware of loss and the pain within life. She's in tune with it, always has been, despite having had a happy childhood, a happy life. She's jolly, with a jolly soul, smiles lift the painter's mouth. But with her work she explores this connection to the world she's always had. And yes, the product is often dark, because the world is often dark. Some shy away from her work because they sense the darkness surrounding it. But she's afraid they're missing the humour. There's anguish, true. But humour can be found at a dark place too, if you're not afraid to look for it. Yet the painter understands why look into darkness when you can look away. To contemplate the ideas emerging from her work, of the pointlessness and random ambiguity and suffering in life, the finite quality of flesh, the finite quality of age, you must leave the false world designed to protect you from such horrors, to see that those horrors are ordinary and the emotion we experience because of these factors is perfectly ordinary too, and acceptable, an intrinsic part of human life. We should embrace the cold world, look it in the eye, and unlock the ability to empathise with one another. The painter wonders why only artists, in all their different guises, can look life's arbitrary nature in the eye, and see it for what it is. We are here because we call. The pair talk about music and how it influences their work. 
Music helps an artist reach the concentrated state of meditation that can enhance the channeling of creative energy into the work at hand. So it is for the painter. She wants to step back from herself. She doesn't want to insert anything of herself into her work. She wants to see what she can find in the moment of painting, to see what the paint itself might offer up. She wants objectivity, to step away from the cloud of thoughts that embroils the mind and to see the world for what it is, random, capricious, hard, robust, and within a structure far greater than itself, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe. Reason is revealed, a reason why our lives seem insignificant and small. Yes, there's a place here, for overwhelming anguish, crushing, anxiety. Yet, we must pay to explore the reason in human life. To gain awareness means to embrace the deafening knowledge of one's place in the order of things. The painter brings this acceptance to her work. She doesn't use a model when she paints, but enters this concentrated zone and tries and tries with whatever material, oil paints, watercolours, or a chunk of charcoal, until she discovers something recognisable, something human. Watercolours reflect the roundedness of the world for they create their own patterns whilst they dry and may or may not show anything at all. If nothing human emerges, she'll tear down the work and try again. If the work is not equal to the task, she knows she must continue her search for she finds she cannot look away. We watch through eyes smeared shut. The painter is conscious that this all sounds pretentious when described so, but the writer nods. He knows the truth of the task. It's this challenge to grasp something of the essence of our existence, something she recognises as human in her work, that drives her. The writer sees this displayed within the rows of paintings lit by sunlight on the walls. The pair talk about others whose work has been influential. She admires German Expressionism, but can't escape the agenda in the work. She wants to step back from herself. She doesn't want to insert anything of herself into her work. She's a feminist, of course, but only when she leaves herself behind can she discover what might be revealed. She admires her contemporaries for braving politics in their work, yet she must step back from herself to discover what might be revealed. The painter pauses. Her arms drift by her side as if floating down on parachutes. She recalls to the conversation the finite quality of flesh, the finite quality of age. Rembrandt's late self-portraits were masterful because they acknowledged this fragility, this finite aspect of life. Her mouth lifts as she turns the question to the writer, more juice. The poetry of Hughes. His intelligence, she says, came from his decisions. He made clever choices about when and where to observe, and then allowed nature to present to him its mysteries, and waited to see what was revealed. All he really did was watch to see what came. The writer imagines the painter, entranced by bleeding, morphing ink, by dust storms of charcoal, the slow tides of oil paint, waiting to see what might come.
some echo of a world that's real. It's not possible to truly know another person's mind, yet perhaps by finding something in common in art, we can catch a glimpse. We walk here and there, trapped inside our bodies, thoughts ricochet about our skulls. There's no way out. But if a painter conjures an image from her mind and places it into yours, something she recognises as human, this offering might make a fleeting connection. Existence, anguish, humour, the lottery of flesh, the finite quality of age. We can catch a glimpse of it once it's reflected by another and come to understand something real, something true, knowable within ourselves. Look upon our faces. Our faces are not our faces. Try on our makeup. It's anguish. It's humour. We are here because we call. Your face is smeared and brushed and moved. Nudge us. Search within us. We watch through eyes smeared shut as you search beneath for the familiar. For some reflection. For some glimmer. Some echo of a world that's real. Look upon our faces. Our faces are not our faces. The sky above the bus is heavy. Clouds of dense grey gather. The writer sees again the lifted mouth. Eyes bright with understanding. A heart where secrets dance. Trees, still as paintings, hold their leaves up towards the falling rain.
Thanks for tuning in, guys. You can find links to various pieces of work online, stream music, other JBM casts, and so on at jamesbrucemay.com. I have a YouTube channel at youtube.com slash jamesbrucemay, and if you'd like to get in touch about anything in this podcast or just say hello, you can either click on the Talk tab in my website, join me at jamesbrucemay on Instagram, give me a tweet to james underscore bruce underscore may, or send an email to james underscore bruce underscore may at hotmail.co.uk. Or there's always good old FB, facebook.com slash jamesbrucemay. Just for the lawyers listening, I've got copyright permission for all of the material used. The music you heard at the start was the original guitar demo for Farewell Clarissa's Meet at Dusk, and the rest was just me on my old Roland XP80 keyboard. Thanks to Fabrizio and Aunt Dest and to Laura with her sharp editorial eye, and also to Diane Kaufman, whose work you really should check out as it is astonishing. Thanks again for listening. Hope to catch you again soon on here. Cheers.